Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the freedom and the privilege we have to gather here together and to worship you and to hear your word and to be welcomed again to this table of your grace and your love. We ask, Father, that as we would open your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that, Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts and lives and be transforming and sanctifying us. Jesus, we thank you that you're here that you are alive and at work in our church and in our city and in our world. So, Lord, would you guide this time together as we look at your word and prepare our hearts uh, to be reminded of the table again. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Before I continue on, I just want to give my welcome as well. And uh, if you're new or visiting here, my name's Nick. I'm the lead pastor at the church. We're just really glad you're here. It's, it's getting warmer out, so we're starting to get visitors again. And uh, summer is often busy visitor time, and we're getting closer and closer. So welcome, and if you're new, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Do come find me. Uh, yeah, let's, let's jump into this passage. We're, we're picking up from last week. Last week, we were introduced to King Nebuchadnezzar, who has the dream that he is sure has some sort of future significance. And so he calls on his magical council to interpret the dream. And no one can do it, and so in a rage, he sort of flies off the handle and threatens to just take everybody out. And in contrast to the angry foolishness of the king, Daniel displays wisdom and faith and trust in the one true God. And so he makes an appointment with the king, even though he doesn't yet have the interpretation. He sets up uh, the time to go and connect with the king putting himself in a position where he's going to have to really exercise faith in Jesus, or Jesus in God. Uh, Jesus is, is alive, but not in that quite the sense. <laughs> the Son is preexistent with the Father, but Jesus uh, is, is not yet revealed. And so he makes an appointment to go and see the King, trusting in God, and he gathers his friends to pray, and then he heads to bed, and God faithfully provides the interpretation. And so last week, we discussed this contrast between King Nebuchadnezzar and his abusive people versus Daniel and the, the grace and the friendship that he extends to people, but even also to his enemies because he's trying to save the other wise men of the Babylonian Empire who is really uh, has taken them uh, away from their home. They're, this is a foreign nation that's invaded their home and has taken them captive, and yet he's trying to seek the good of the place he's been put. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. We talked about how Daniel is able to respond to a life and death situation because he's taken the time throughout his life to grow a steady, deep relationship with God. And he's taken time to invest in good relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ. There I go again. I'm making it New Testament. In fellow believers in Yahweh along the way. And so he's prepared when this moment comes because he he's, he's, has a deep faith in God. He's got friends that can pray alongside him. And we talked about how that is actually essential for our lives as well, that when crisis comes, it is so much better to come to that moment having a deep reservoir of faith to draw on because we have made our time with God a priority and having friends along the way that we can phone up that are, are trustworthy and can pray with us so that we're not heading into that moment, whatever that might be, alone. And now we come to the dream itself. 
And notice in verse 26, uh, well, first, verse 25, let's back up just a minute. We didn't read it, but just notice here, uh, Daniel and Arioch again go to uh, their appointment with the king. Notice what Arioch says. I didn't have Pastor Velma read this, but it is interesting. He brings Daniel before the king in haste and says to him, I've found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king his interpretation, except he didn't. He didn't find Daniel. Daniel's the one that went and approached him. So Arioch's trying to, to garner favor with Nebuchadnezzar, which again shows the kind of person he is, right? You're trying to get in this guy's good books because he, he can fly off the handle. And so the king says to Daniel, can you make known to me the dream and the interpretation? Remember last week we talked about how the king isn't just asking for an interpretation to the dream. He's making the wise men, his magical counsel, tell him the dream and the interpretation. And that's what's kind of flabbergasted them because they can't even hear the dream and sort of make up some sort of interpretation. He's making them have to give the dream as well. So we asked the same question to Daniel. And Daniel very intentionally uh, tells him, this isn't based on my own wisdom. I might be able to answer this question. I may be able to interpret this dream, not because I am special or have unique gifts, but because God reveals mysteries. The God in heaven is the one I serve, and he will reveal it. And so he then goes on to interpret the dream, verses 31 to 45. And the dream, this is a familiar passage. If you've grown up in church, I'm sure you've heard about it, or in Sunday school, you maybe had flannel graphs of the various parts of the image of the statue. And that's what it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image of a giant statue of sorts. And it's huge, and it's frightening, and it's mighty. has a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, the leg of iron, and the mixture of iron and clay further down to the bottom. And each of these, Daniel says, is a human civilization that's to come. And the traditional way of reading this, of understanding this, is uh, that it's first Babylon. And that's pretty obvious because Daniel makes the point of saying, King, you're the head of gold. God has allowed this kingdom to have a measure of power and glory. Look at verse 38. It says, or 37, 38, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is not a great guy, as we've seen already. But there's a, there's a recognition here from Daniel that even though Nebuchadnezzar is not a follower of Yahweh, doesn't know God, that God has still put him in a position of authority, that God has still positioned him uh, in the place that he is, even, and, and he has a responsibility to choose to live that out well and to do that in a way that is honoring to God. But uh, Daniel makes it clear, don't God sets up kings and brings them down again. That's, that's, that's what God does. And look at verse 38. He says, into whose hand he has given, God has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And it sounds like an echo, doesn't it, of Genesis, where God tells Adam and Eve, that as humans, as his image bearers, they have a regal, a royal authority over the beasts of the field and over the birds of the air. And in the same way, Daniel is saying, you, king, have a similar calling. You have an authority 
over these various aspects of creation. It's reminiscent of the power and the glory that's granted to Adam. Babylon was a really vast empire. Nebuchadnezzar ruled fairly ruthlessly, as we've seen. They have the Hanging Gardens, which is one of the, the ancient seven wonders of the world. And so the head of gold is a really fitting depiction for Babylon. And yet, Babylon won't last. And that's the point of the dream, is for Nebuchadnezzar to realize you won't be in this position forever. And so Daniel goes on to say that after him will come two more kingdoms who will each be inferior to the previous in glory and in unity, though they're still strong. And the typical way, again, of, of interpreting this is that the, the chest and arms of silver was the empire of Medo-Persia, which came afterwards. We can do all the dates if we want, uh, but it's easy to look that up in a, in a study Bible or whatnot. This is usually the way it's thought. So after Babylon fell, uh, Medo-Persia came into power, and actually by the end of Daniel, Persia is already taken over. And Daniel carries on to help with, just kind of shifts allegiance over, I guess I'll be helping with Persia. Oop, off we go. And then after Persia fell, uh, Greece came and took over. And so Greece is considered the bronze abdomen. And then after Greece, the fourth kingdom, which is told specifically is as strong as iron, is usually considered to be the Roman Empire, which is, again, very strong. And it's an indication uh, also that it's got its strength, but it's, it's less in sort of glory because we moved from gold to silver to bronze and now to iron. So strong, but not necessarily beautiful. And the feet are a mixture of iron and clay, which is actually really interesting because Rome had this syncretistic approach to other nations where they would try to, they would come into your country or your people and they would try to adopt your culture into Rome. And so you could kind of keep your beliefs somewhat as long as you also submitted to Rome. And they would kind of let you keep going and kind of work your fields and stuff. And then you had to kind of, tax that up the line, right? That's why later on in the New Testament, Rome's over Israel, but they're still able to practice Judaism, right? And they still, they still have their temple and stuff, but Rome has infiltrated the culture, and uh, there's a whole issue about the Jewish Pharisees and who's their real Lord, and that becomes a big issue at the moment of crucifixion before Pilate, when what did the Jewish religious leaders say to Pilate? Who's their Lord? They say, Caesar is Lord. And that's exactly what's going on here with Rome. Rome would take you kind of under and take you over, but they would kind of give you some measure of protection. That's why Pilate's there. There's a Roman outpost. And yet you would be under Roman authority. And because of that syncretistic approach to taking over cultures, you had various people who made up Rome but didn't really hold together very well. Kind of like the iron and the clay don't hold together very well. That's part of what's pictured here. And it's said that even in verse 41, 42, as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron will still be in it. And it even describes them later, verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with clay. And so this is a, it's a strong kingdom, Rome, huge empire, incredibly powerful like the iron, but eventually cannot hold together partly because of the syncretistic approach to how they dealt with cultures. And so eventually the whole thing crumbles and falls apart. And Daniel indicates that uh, it'll be partly strong, but it's also ultimately brittle, right? And so all of these are going to happen. And in this dream, 
Nebuchadnezzar is getting this sense repeatedly. Babylon is not going to endure forever. In fact, your successors are going to decrease in splendor, right? And even though uh, the Iron Empire of Rome is going to be significant, uh, it too eventually is going to fade. And as much as it's fun to chart kind of which empire is which and how that might play out, the most fascinating part of the dream is actually what happens next in verse 44. And it says, In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. God, not a human ruler, not some other conquering warlord, but Yahweh, the God of heaven, is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and it's not going to get replaced by some other kingdom down the line, or it's not going to break apart and get inherited by some other faction later on. It's going to stand forever. And just as the stone that was cut without human hand came and smashed apart the other human civilizations, that stone is going to then become a sort of mountain and it's going to endure and stand beyond the, the, what seemed glorious and what seemed mighty, but were eventually temporary kingdoms of human civilization. Look at verse 44 at the end. It said, It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And then at the end of verse 45, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, the dream is certain, the interpretation sure. So just a couple things, a couple things to note when we're thinking about this interpretation and the dream. I think the first thing that's helpful for us, just in terms of implications for us, many, 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 many centuries later, is we're talking about the power and the prestige of human kingdoms and how alluring those kingdoms can be to us we can be very easily allured by the success and the powers of nations around us. Whether it's empires like Babylon in Daniel's day, or perhaps it's the allure of corporations or countries with their wealth and their status in our day, these empires can just hold tremendous sway in our culture and actually even in our own hearts and lives. And it's really easy to base our lives around the values that are promoted by the empire, by what we own, by how much money we make or don't make, by how successful we might seem or don't seem, how we present ourselves. And, you know, those allures of, of money and success and influence, unfortunately, are also present in the church. We can be allured by those things in terms of measuring whether a church is successful or not. And God's word reminds us that human empires and their values that are associated with them will eventually fade. Those things will not last. In fact, it's not unusual for us to see big empires in our day come crashing down in various ways. Uh, Sarah was telling me, my wife, was telling me she was watching uh, the documentary about Hillsong, uh, which is about the fall of a megachurch and some of the, the scandals that were involved with Hillsong uh, from early on in its inception. And one of the uh, people they were interviewing mentioned that when things get big, 
and seem worldly successful, the tendency to fall to either our pride or our lust or our greed seems to be accentuated. And those, those temptations are always there, but the bigger we get and the more successful we look and the larger we care about uh, how wonderful everything is and keeping this machine going and telling ourselves well, we're, we're influencing a lot of people, uh, we need to be all the more careful of not letting issues of status or immorality or greed become uh, the root of how we live. Because in that sense, we start living for a human empire and not for the kingdom of God. I remember when I took uh, pastoral care and ethics at Regent, we had to read a book on clergy sexual misconduct because of how prevalent that becomes for pastors who become put in positions of power and then have to navigate uh, the various real practical issues of not falling into sin while being in a position of power. And it's really, really important for us to realize that those allures of the empire, of our status, our wealth, our achievement, are really present temptations in our lives today. And yet, we, as we read through the Gospels, as we read through the life of Jesus, we realize time and time again that Jesus doesn't base his success on our programs or the size of our buildings or whether we were able to live stream or not <laughs> or our followers on Facebook. Our success as a church is found in whether we were abiding in the life and the love of Jesus and whether over time as church leaders we're asking are the people who come here, the flock that is Drydenful Gospel Church, are we growing in maturity as disciples of Jesus? Are we growing more and more in love with God? Are we becoming more and more faithful to the calling of the Great Commission? Not was the church full on Sunday, though that is wonderful, and we thank God for that. Not how, how many seats were filled. Not how many views did we have online, though that can be a wonderful indicator of whether people are engaging and Ideally, that's pointing them to Jesus, but we don't always know that. But are we growing as disciples of Jesus who are also making disciples of Jesus? That's what God calls us to. That's what Jesus calls us to, not to measure our lives by the status or the pleasure or the greed or the consumption of the idols like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, because ultimately those things fade. And the measure of our lives as followers of Jesus needs to be in whether we were loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, to go and baptize and to teach and to make disciples. So it's really a question of identity that the passage brings up. It's like, well, what's your, where's your identity lie? Are you more associated with the powers of an empire or with the kingdom of God? the faith that we can have in a true and living God. And that's what the dream reminds us of, that Babylon won't stand forever. And that's true today. Babylon's gone. It's, it's dust. It's cities buried in the desert. And there's new emperors that come and new empires that rise, but eventually those two fade. And Daniel reminds us there's this time that comes when God will establish his kingdom kingdom that will never be destroyed 
And note that each of these kingdoms we mentioned already has glory, but, but also an end. And it's, it fades from sort of glory, less and less glorious metals, down to just iron and clay. And it's a reminder, too, that the progression of world history is not upwards in goodness or in unity or glory, but rather it's a downward trend towards deeper dishonor and deeper disunity. And so the statue progresses from worse to worse splendor in terms of its metals and progresses more and more in toughness and endurance. And many see there a a sense of the general decline of the morality of nations in world history and their governments, and also an increase in how long they'll last. But by contrast, God's kingdom starts humbly as just a stone, and yet it grows into a mountain. God's kingdom takes the reverse trajectory of being like a grain of mustard seed that grows to envelop the whole world. God's kingdom stands forever. And that stone that breaks the others to pieces is often considered to be Jesus himself. That Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has actually broken the power of our slavery to the sins of living under empires. That because of Jesus, we are no longer bound to finding our identity in our status or in our greed or in our pride or in our various positions of influence. Jesus has broken the image of gold and silver and bronze and iron. And now we can live returning to the mountain of God. And how often in the Psalms are we called as pilgrims to come back to the mountain? It's so fitting that Daniel envisions God's kingdom as that mountain at the end. And so the passage then concludes with verses 46 to 49, and Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and starts, it's almost like he's trying to worship Daniel, right? He's like, oh, we're going to offer incense to him. Off we go, and he's giving Daniel gifts. He makes him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So not only has Daniel effectively saved all the wise men, which was kind of his goal, now he's over them all. And it's very, very similar to what we saw in Genesis with Joseph and the Pharaoh, right? Once the dream was interpreted, uh, Pharaoh gives Joseph incredible authority and governance over the affairs of the nation. And so in the same way, Daniel has been given that opportunity as well. And then Daniel's like, hey, verse 49, uh, could you get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego some good positions as well? That'd be great, right? So off they go. And, and the rest are, are put over the affairs of Babylon, it says, but Daniel remained in the king's court. And I wanted to conclude with that thought that once this is all said and done, Daniel and his friends are given basically more authority and a greater position of influence. And I was wondering, what's our calling when we find ourselves under a foreign ruler in that sense, when we're called to live for God and to live the way of Jesus in a country or in a society that is far from God, that no longer follows God? And Daniel chooses to live faithfully for God, even in the difficult circumstances. He trusts God when the trouble comes. And in response, Daniel's promoted by his enemies and then given new opportunity to continue living for God in the midst of this foreign emperor. He has, he has the sense, he has the opportunity to actually live out 
what Jeremiah had called Israel to live out when Jeremiah said, you're going to head into exile. Jeremiah had said, this is Jeremiah 29, 5 and 7. This was the call to Israel when they went into exile. And this is now the thing that Daniel can live out. Jeremiah said this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may build, bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. Now here it is in the Living Bible, just a different translation. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant vineyards. You're going to be there for many years. Marry and have children. Then find mates for them and have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Pray for her. For if Babylon has peace, so will you. So think of it now. Daniel and his friends because of choosing to live faithfully for God, have now found themselves promoted into this new position under a foreign ruler, and they have the opportunity to live out the same idea, the same thesis that Jeremiah has. Not to, they're not seeking to overthrow Babylon. They don't start a plot to actually try and assassinate Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's not the idea. The idea instead is to seek the peace and the welfare of the city they've been planted in to pray to God for this broken foreign nation. Because in its success, so they will have success and peace, especially, which is, which is really important when you're living in, in the ancient Near East and there's war happening all the time. And you know, we have the same calling today. We have the same calling today to seek the peace of the country and the city in which we live. That's also our calling. We're called to live out this passage from Jeremiah as well. To seek the good of our nation. To pray to God for Canada and her leaders. To settle down. To choose to stay. And to plant gardens and to get married and, and raise families and have kids for the good of this society. To work where we've been planted. And I was thinking about even our vision as a church and the sort of the values that we've made as part of the church, that we want to grow disciples and we want to help people find community, but we also want to cultivate hope in our city, in the place where we've been planted, to extend to people the grace and the life of Jesus. And that's why when we were working even on our five-year vision back in 2020 for the next five years, we wanted to make that a central part of our identity as a church, that we too would seek the good of the city that we've been planted in. That that would be more than just something we think about, but would actually be something we would do. And that's why we put right in the vision that we want to try to be a loving presence for the good of the city. And that means being connected with the people who are here, not being just sequestered off to ourselves, but seeking to engage people with the love of Jesus. I remember a friend of mine when I first started pastoring would ask, if the church disappeared, would the city notice? 
when Dryden considers full gospel church in our community, are we a loving presence? I'd like to think we are. Are we seeking the good of the city that we've been planted in? Are we seeking to care well for those who live here, to be praying for people, and to be acting in practical ways to reach out to the lost? That's God's heart. That's the heart of Jesus. To extend God's love and his grace, both with the, the news of salvation, but also tangibly by caring for people's empty stomachs and those that have no roofs over their heads. That's God's heart. I was thinking of even of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, where he says it's actually about himself. He says, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And the disciples ask, when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? When were you hungry and we fed you? That never happened, Jesus. It was other people that we fed. It was other people that we put in the shelter. And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you were actually doing to me. And that is a, that's a bit of a heartbreaking statement because it means that the way in which we're called to love Jesus is shown in the faces of those who are often the most difficult to love. And it means that it's, it has to overcome our, our sense of, of fear of engaging with people who we don't know and who are in difficult situations that are different from us because the face of Jesus is actually in their face. And Jesus makes that point, not me. I wish he didn't, because it'd be so much easier not to do that. But Jesus makes the point. When you see the one who's hungry, you want to seek to feed them. Because when you're doing that, you're actually doing it to me. And when you find out there's people who don't have homes, and you can shelter them, you're doing it not to them, you're doing it for me. Because I'm present in them. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. And so that needs to be the heart of why we do so much of what we do, because we're doing it unto Jesus himself, who is present in the lives of the people who are lost and broken. And we want to call them into saving relationship with himself. We want to help those that are hungry recover. We want to help those who are homeless find good homes and good jobs by coming alongside and loving them and caring for them well and helping them into programs where they can deal with addictions and mental health crises and whatnot, and et cetera, et cetera. Not because it's some sort of social issue that we tag onto the gospel, but because Jesus himself says, this is what I want you to do as a church. Because that's what the gospel say to do. Not because Nick has an idea about a shelter, but because Jesus says, shelter the people who don't have the shelter. That's God's heart. And that's why it's so nice when people come and ask for food lately, because we've had food to give away, we can actually give them food, and you should see the smiles on their faces. When we can actually give them something to fill their stomachs. It's actually much better than the Tim Hortons gift card, which can be traded for other things. It's something else to actually give real food to fill a stomach. And yes, it's scary, and yes, it's different and it's hard. I was thinking of the, the 70 disciples who Jesus calls to go, go out in pairs and don't bring anything and uh, stay at people's houses and just pray that there'll be some hospitality along the way. 
and uh, and you just you just preach the gospel and teach and heal people and care for them. Uh, off you go. You don't think those disciples were scared and didn't have a clue what to do, and yet they chose to do it. And Jesus was faithful in caring for them along the way to engage with people they didn't know and to share the kingdom. And God was faithful even in the midst of the real risks that were present. And so my prayer for us as we think about Daniel is that we would remember that we can put our hope in God and his plan and remember that his kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of the world, especially the kingdoms that may rage on the news lately that God will see those kingdoms through to their end, whatever that might be, that his kingdom is greater than whatever tyrannical empire or poor leaders or broken nations that we see. Those will come and go. But the word of God and the kingdom of Jesus, our risen Lord, will stand forever. And in the meantime, like Daniel, we're called to live for God in the place and time that he's planted us, to seek the good of the city. And that means both sharing our faith and caring well for those in need, not because it's easy, but because Jesus calls us to and equips us with his spirit so we can do it when we don't know how. And so may we not waver with kings and their dreams, but rest in the grace to live for Jesus, to extend his love and his hope to those around us. Amen. Let's pray to that end, and we'll get ready to come to the table. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you lead and guide world events and world history, and it's really easy to get worried and consumed by what we see around us. But Father, I thank you for this word from Daniel, which just tells us, Lord, you're in control. You know what's going on. You're greater than all these things. Lord, we're... we're we're so aware of what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine, other areas around the world, Lord, where human empires and civilizations seem so broken and so in need of you. And we pray, Father, that you would bring your grace and your hope and your peace. Lord, that you would establish your kingdom in those places and in the hearts of those who are far from you. Lord, I pray for our own hearts that as we would seek to live for you in Canada where we've been planted, you would give us the opportunities to extend to others the salvation and the hope that you've given us. And to do that not just by caring for someone's soul, but also seeking the good of the whole person, to feed those who are hungry, to shelter those who are in need, to help people get out of addictions, help people in their marriages and in their families. Lord, to extend your grace and your hope. Lord, you've planted us here at such a time as this. And I pray like Daniel, you would give us wisdom to know how to live out your gospel well in this season. Lord, we can only do that because we have been saved and forgiven absolutely freely. It's a, it's a sheer gift of your grace that we've been saved. And so, Father, we want to extend that gift to others. Jesus, as we come to this table, we're reminded of that gift, that gift of your salvation that you won for us at the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, stir our hearts to a deeper walk with you as we would come to this table this morning. Amen.
On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we will proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon these gifts and upon us today? Lord, that you would satisfy our deepest hungers for you, that you would fill us afresh with the knowledge of the goodness of your salvation, that we may go from this place into the mission field where you called us. We ask this in your name. Amen.